All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. The sponsors for the second hour are Prophecy Platinum, Blue Goldwaters Technologies Limited, and SGX Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Andy Hoffman, also known as Ranting Andy. Andy Hoffman uh, is a CFA. He joined Miles Franklin as a marketing director in October 2011. For a decade, he was a U.S.-based buy-side and sell side analyst, most notably as an as a ranked oil service analyst at Solomon Smith Barney from 1999 through 2005. Since 2002, his focus has been entirely on precious metals, and since 2006, has written free missives regarding gold, silver, and macroeconomics under the uh, moniker Ranting Andy. Prior to joining the company, he spent five years working as an investment relations officer or consultant to numerous junior mining companies, an archive of Andy's rants can be found on Miles Franklin blog. That's uh, blog.milesfranklin.com. Welcome, Andy, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Jay. I remember reading your stuff in my... uh formative precious metal years in the early 2000s. Uh, I'm really glad that I got a chance to meet you finally personally uh, down there at the Mastermind Symposium in Dallas uh, a few days ago. And, and I want to get into the precious metals markets for sure and to the extent possible explore your ideas about the general equity and bond markets in the U.S. But before we get into that, I want to ask you also about an exceptional movie uh, titled Silver Circle, which I viewed at the Liberty Mastermind Symposium a few days ago in Dallas, Texas. Can you tell our listeners about the movie Silver Circle? Circle, why it is important for them to see it and where they can go to view it? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, a few years down the line, everyone's going to, it's going to be a household name. I came across uh, Megan Duffield uh, and Pasha Roberts. Megan's the marketing director and Pasha's the director, producer, writer uh, about three or four years ago when they first conceived the idea of putting together a movie of what the world would look like, or uh, I should say the United States, when uh, hyperinflation starts to really kick in. And uh, it's just taken a real, real long time to put this amazing animated uh, piece together. It finally came out a month or two ago, and I've been heavily marketing it for them. Uh, basically, you know, anyone who's interested in the concept of why you need to own real money should watch it. And on top of that, it's a very entertaining movie. It just uh, went live on um, on uh, all the mass media like iTunes and DVD just this weekend. And I really think I encourage everyone to watch it. It's as educational as it is entertaining. You know, Andy, it's not only educational and entertaining, but I think it's realistic. You see in the movie how people are controlled by the state and in some cases through force uh, but how the sort of the con job keeping people in poverty
impoverished, so they feel they have no choice but to basically do what they are programmed to do by the state. It's, I think it's very, very realistic, and I think it's very, very important that people see it. I think the message is absolutely fantastic because I think most people are in den- a state of denial with respect to what is going on in the United States right now. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, well, basically what it comes down to, and it's not just the United States. The United States is the leader of this global fiat currency standard, but because of all the inflation exported, everyone is dealing with it. And as a result, governments around the world have resorted to the final frontier of money printing, market manipulation, and propaganda. Uh, that's their only tools left to maintain the status quo in which they and their banker puppets are in power. And you're seeing it everywhere. Look at the riots we're talking about. Look at what's going on in Egypt. There's a, a military coup as we speak that there's political upheaval going on in Brazil, in Portugal, in Turkey, uh, in Greece, uh, just to name a few, Argentina, as we speak. And and I, I fear that what we see in Silver Circle is what we're going to see in many places around the world in the coming years. I wish it weren't so, Andy. And I want to say one thing to my listeners, and I know they know it's true, and I know it's true of you as well. You and I are big believers in gold and silver because it's real money. We do not want all hell to break loose so we get rich. We are buying gold and silver and other investments in that field because we believe the die is cast. I'm sure you're on, you agree with me on that. Absolutely. Yeah. What I call the holy grail of the financial world, which is a piece I wrote, is that uh, only gold and silver are real money. They are savings, not investments. I mean, you can buy paper investments. You can buy paper precious metals investments. But when you do, you're speculating. We hold physical gold and silver, simply to insure ourselves against inflation. In the near term, the governments will play their little paper games and try to keep confidence, as I said, but ultimately they always lose. There's been 599 paper currencies in history, and the only ones that didn't fail were the ones that were conquered by other nations. It, it is true. I mean, the con game goes on and on, and it is also, I think, very clear from reading your writings that you, that you have no doubt that the gold and silver markets are heavily manipulated, and I certainly have no problem believing that. Uh, increasing it seems like almost every market you can turn to is manipulated either directly or indirectly. Indirectly, certainly, by QE and, and all kinds of regulations. But, but I think you believe the precious metals markets and especially the paper markets are manipulated directly. Is that right? Uh, yes. As uh, Chris Powell of GATA once said, and I'm, you know, I'm a GATA disciple myself, there are no more markets, just manipulations. And as you say, it's all markets. I mean, when you talk about the Dow, you're talking about the president's working group of capital markets. When you talk about bonds, it's QE. Uh, when you talk about currencies and gold, by the way, if you read the, the uh, documentation, the Exchange Stabilization Fund. And then, of course, there's the OMT in Europe and there's there's the Bank of Japan's qualitative quantitative easing and you name it across the board. Uh, when it comes to gold, though, it's the only one that these days is extremely covert, although there's plenty of evidence out there showing otherwise. And, you know, what, what I've been doing in, in Gata's uh, footsteps for, for the past decade is to show people the clear proof out there of exactly what they're doing. Yeah, and... Why do you think it's extremely covert? Why do they have to make that so covert? I mean, they'll come right out and say, uh, you know, we manipulate currencies, we manipulate interest rates, uh, we manip- we manip- well, they don't say we manipulate the stock market, but, but certainly, why do you think it's so important that it is covert? I know that there were, you know, there were there were trials. Uh, Reg Howell had a, uh, you know, had had sued the government and uh, the BIS. Uh, it was, I guess, and you know, the Federal Reserve come out and said, well, we don't manipulate the gold markets, but we have the right to do so. 
why do you think they have to deny it so much? Well, first of all, that the Howe case, you know, they said, well, we don't have to respond to you. But if, then you talk about the Blanchard case back in, I don't know, 2003 or four, where right. uh, Blanchard sued uh, J.P. Morgan and American Barrick for manipulating the markets. And they admitted, yes, we did so as agents of the government. So you should throw out our case. And eventually they settled out of court. And we don't know exactly uh, what they said. And of course, right afterward, Barrick uh, stopped, stopped their hedging practices, although everyone knows that they have hedged what's going on at Pasco Lama, which is why they are probably going to go bankrupt in the in the coming year. But when we talk about the gold market, the reason they have to be covert about it is several reasons. One, it's competition for the dollar. They don't want to admit it when you ask Bernanke in, in uh in court, when Ron Paul asked him, is uh, gold money? He says, no, it's not. Uh, they just hold it for tradition. But the fact is, they know it is, which is why all the, the reserve banks, the central banks of the world have been buying it up left and right. Uh, and it's also, again, unlike the paper markets where there's an unlimited supply, they can move markets by printing as much as they want and buying or shorting. But there's only so much physical out there. And the last thing you want to do is create a panic for the little gold and silver that's still out there. Right, so they have to keep it under. They have to. They have to keep it hidden. Uh, well, how you know you're a mainstream. You had been a mainstream guy on Wall Street, an analyst with respected firms, uh, respected as an analyst in your field and in the energy sector, especially. Uh, how many mainstream professionals on Wall Street do you think understand that this market is rigged, and and how many of them do you think would really think that it's a good thing and it's necessary? Well, the thing with not just Wall Street people, but pretty much everyone is they get brainwashed by the status quo, partly because of this, as I said, the market manipulation, money printing and uh, and propaganda, but also because it's in their best interest. And uh, particularly if you're talking about Wall Street, I mean, the only people that benefit, I shouldn't say the only people, the people that benefit most from this status quo where this uh, where this inflationary monetary policy is Wall Street. It just doesn't serve their purposes to talk about. It. In fact, Mike Krieger, who was there, my good friend, he was he too left Wall Street because he was talking publicly about gold and silver and they didn't like that. Uh, because heck, I would talk to our oil analyst every day who had a long term eighteen dollar oil price forecast and I kept saying, Well what about inflation? Does that come into your, your forecast? This is the top ranked oil analyst and he, he would say, Inflation, I don't even think about that. So I would say the amount of people that know Know it that understand it is probably less than five percent, and of the, the people that actually would you know act on it, it's even less than that. Fascinating. Ultimately, as you and I know, uh, markets will prevail. The lies of government will be exposed. Hopefully, they're exposed. Hopefully, people understand why the markets fail. But that's another issue. You know, I want to ask you a little about Egypt because it's in the news as we're recording this interview. Egypt looks like it's sitting on a potential powder keg. There, there are tens of thousands of people in the streets that want to see the existing government thrown out, and in an angry speech. Uh, Recently, President Mohamed Morsi has rejected an ultimatum from the military that he stepped down. But I bring this up because on June 26, you wrote an essay titled Crybaby Attack. You noted that back on January 25, 2011, when Mubarak was ousted, the gold markets behaved very strangely. Can you explain the gold markets uh, when Mubarak was ousted and, and why you titled your essay Crybaby Attack? Oh, I see what you're saying. Yes, it, it, that's just when I... Uh Back in, I think it was 2010 or 2011. 2011? When had, yeah, when you had the first uh, Arab Spring right. revolutions in Egypt. That's when I first saw the crybaby attack, and I'll explain that in a second. But basically, what's going on in Egypt now is, you know, that Arab Spring started a few years ago with Tunisia and Algeria and Egypt uh, and a couple of the Middle East nations. Uh, they called MENA, Middle East, North Africa. And uh, when it settled down just for a couple of months, they acted like it all was changed. But anyone who's looking at what's going on in Egypt realizes that uh, they kind of 
force this Muslim Brotherhood into office against the people's will, they've had much, much worse inflation. If anyone's looked at the Egyptian pound, which is their currency, I think it's down 40% since mm. that Arab Spring, just a huh. year and a half ago. So they, you know, they kicked the other people out, but didn't get what they wanted. And now they're going to kick this guy out. And who knows what's going to happen next? Uh, I mean, basically what it comes down to it is inflation has gotten dramatically worse in the parts of the world that spend the highest percentage of their incomes on food. And the Middle East oh. is right up there. The same goes for India, where as we speak, I'm looking at my screen, and the rupee is at an all-time low as the government begs and pleads people to not buy gold. Yeah. So they're buying silver. But the crybaby attack is just one of the uh, cartels methods of attacking the gold and silver prices. And basically, uh, anyone who's followed my work or gathers knows that they have key attack times. Uh, they've always worked uh, at 3 a.m. Eastern time, which is when the Chinese markets close. 8.20 a.m., uh, these are Eastern Standard Times, is the COMEX open. 10 o'clock is their key attack time. That's when the physical market closes for the day for the p.m. fix. 12 o'clock p.m. Eastern time is what I call the cap of last resort, which doesn't equate to any specific event, but it's clearly a time where they, they see if gold is, is doing too well, we're going to quell but they've even added in recent years, and the first time I saw it was during those first Egyptian attacks, what I call the crybaby attack, which is at exactly 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And lately, we've seen it a ton. We're at exactly 2 o'clock. Things are out of hand as far as the cartel sees it. They come in and just whack paper, gold, and silver. Now, you, uh, I guess what you're saying is there's a huge amount of selling that comes in at, at a certain time. It has to be somebody that's very significant. It couldn't just be a spontaneous reaction of, of hundreds or thousands of players. Players, right? Yeah, and it's not necessarily volume per se. It's volume on the offer. So often when you hear these big paper hits like last year's Leap Day violation or what I call just two months ago in April, the uh, alternative currencies destruction, because that was also the day that, that Bitcoin uh, collapsed. It's not so much at the volume trades when they say a big seller sold a year's worth of production. No, they offer that much. So basically, they just put, they put so much on the offer side of the screen that people just fled by, you know, taking out all the stops, hitting any bids that were there. And these algorithms are calculated to do these things. They're extremely extremely transparent because of what they look like. There's a pattern if you, you Google a, a piece I wrote called Cartel Herald. It's probably the most important one you'll see. Every single gold increase has the same pattern of a flag where it stopped cold. And, mm -hmm. uh, and they do it at the certain times of day. And, you know, I mean, it's just it's just like clockwork. It's been for years, and now they're just adding more and more times. Like I wrote a piece called The 2.15 a.m. That's the open of the London pre-market. Uh, so they used to do 3 a.m. Now they're not even waiting for that. They just go and right into it with those heavy offers the second the London paper thinly traded pre-market open. And, of course, the intent here is to keep the masses um, from focusing on gold and, and dumping paper. I guess that's the ultimate uh, goal, and it seems to be, for, to a great extent, working, isn't it? It's working in the retail market in the United States, which is what uh, we are focused on, in Canada for that matter. But we forget that the United States and Canada cumulatively only buy about 5 or 7% of all the gold and silver that's produced in the world. 62% of it is bought between China and India alone. So it's kind of like when we have big surges at Miles Franklin, sometimes it correlates to what's going on in the rest of the world, but other times it doesn't. And right now, business in the States has slowed a bit, but business overseas is as strong as it's ever been. There was record, record premiums in Shanghai for the past month or two. And there was record gold and silver demand in India, even particularly silver, because now they're trying to keep people from buying gold. Mm -hmm. But the fact is that Eastern markets have never been stronger 
Whereas Western markets were there, we had our busiest month in history in April, but it's been quieter since, and it'll pick up again once people realize uh, that a bottom has in fact been made around here. Yeah, it's uh, no question about it. Some, uh, the gold, the physical gold, is moving from the from the west to the east, and as James Turk has pointed out, that's always been the history uh, with countries that are that are in decline. They lose their gold. I can still remember the Soviet Union in the closing days of the Soviet Union. They 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 sold off their gold and probably bought another month's time or so to keep the keep things together but you know there's some I might just mention to our listeners that um, there are some very interesting responses at least to one article I read there is some a, a lot of uh, there's some interchange there and people should go and read these articles and and provide their own uh, their their own responses I think it's always good to have this sort of give and take but there was one question that somebody said why would mr. bank Bernanke wager all the people's gold to satisfy standing contracts from such truly ridiculous raids all that gold uh, all that gold Gold will be gone forever to China at massive discount prices, a treasonous act by any stretch of the definition. And I think any of us, us that understand the connection between gold and freedom, gold and economic freedom, and how this uh, paper money is being used as a means to wrestle wealth from those that create it. I like to say the miners, the manufacturers, the inventors, the farmers, people do things for other people are getting hosed, and the bank and the, the bankers and the government is grabbing a bigger and bigger share of, of gold. It is the most, uh, it, it is the most most immoral thing that can be imagined, and I guess that's another reason they have to keep people in the dark, right? Keep us all down on the mushroom farm, as they say. Right. And of course, I wouldn't. I wouldn't attribute it solely to Bernanke, or frankly, sure. I wouldn't even put him even close to the top of the list. He's the current pawn in charge. Sure. Uh, the man whose job is to print money, and of course, we'll have a new Fed chairman. I think his his uh, at the end of the year is when his uh, second term ends, and the next person will be even more dovish, whether it's Janet Yellen or. Or someone from Goldman Sachs, or someone we don't even know about. Yeah. Uh, the fact is, it's it's been going on, you know, for for decades. And remember, we had the London Gold Pool back in the '60s doing the same thing overtly, and look what happened to that in 1968. And now we have it covertly. It's you know, the the first evidence that we've had of it being of it starting was in the late '90s when Robert Rubin came in, started with his uh, talking about the strong dollar right. policy, <laughs> and and then uh, Larry Summers' uh, Gibson's paradox and the gold standard, or whatever it was called, and interest rates. Mm-hmm. So, look, the fact is, since look in 1971, we went off the gold standard. At the time, the nation only had a, a, tr- a half a trillion of debt, so we had kind of a credit card that we could charge up. For decades, and there'd be no ramifications. And we were also disporting our gold, so it made it look like the dollar was stronger than it was. But the fact is, that credit card is charged up and the gold is all gone. And Bernanke is just the placeholder now. And whether things go up on his uh, clock or on the next person's clock is, is the only remaining question. Andy, you said the gold is all gone. To what extent do you think the gold that's reported on the balance sheet of the U.S. Treasury is there? Well, look. I mean, you, no one can know for sure because, look, we haven't had an audit of the Treasury since 1956, and we never will. But, you know, there's so much evidence out there, uh, qualitative and quantitative. The latest uh, stuff comes from, for instance, Eric Sprott's done some great work looking at some arcane uh, U.S. trade that is showing the massive amount of exports of, of gold uh, above the amount that we produce. And that's pretty clear evidence that it had to come from resources, and that would be those numbers, uh, you know, were anywhere from five to 7,000 tons, which would be almost all of it. And who knows if we have 1,000 tons, 3,000 tons, 4,000 tons left. 
Either way, it doesn't matter. It's such a tiny amount compared to the tens of trillions of dollars that we printed, let alone the tens of trillions of euros and yen and pounds that are all being hyperinflated at the moment will continue to be so in the future. Andy, I'd like to explore some of the ideas, um, you know, what you think might trigger a turnaround in the psychology of people that might cause people to, to lose confidence. In other words, for the government to lose its con game on the public. Um, one of the issues that comes to mind, I mean, recently this whole issue of the talk about tapering and what sort of uh, enormous volatility, just the suggestion of tapering has brought about. But you wrote a very, I think, very insightful, very important article called The End of the Carry Trade. Uh, explain to the listeners that might not be familiar what the carry trade is and why that's important. Right. Okay. Well, this start with the question, you know, what could make people lose confidence? Obviously, there's a million things. It could be something out of left field, a, a black swan, as they say, such as a, you're a Egyptian revolution or, uh, you know, what I call a gray swan, something like Greece seceding from the euro. They have $500 billion of debt that they're dying to default on. And there's a good chance that they'll do it any day. Uh, there's also things that could that could cause it inflation. The reason we're having these problems in Egypt, in India, in Brazil, for all the propaganda that's out there is inflation. It's the cost of living is causing people to have a difficult time making ends meet. And the more money that's printed, the more inflation and the more riots and the more uh, upsur- um, uh, insurgents you're going to see. Uh, as for the carry trade, uh, and actually one more thing, don't forget the housing bubble here in the United States. That's the only real industry that's left is this housing bubble that started out uh, this year with fundamentals dramatically worse than back in the mid-2000s. And it's held up only by Wall Street money and zero interest rates. And now rates are going up. But again, the carry trade, as, you, as you're asking, simply means trades that where people borrow uh, currencies that have extremely low uh, interest rates and invest them essentially risk-free in higher yielding currencies and securities. Or it's simply uh, getting, the, like, say, J.P. Morgan getting ZERP-free money from the uh, Fed and investing it in treasuries at 2 or 3%. That's free money. But once the interest rates come down too low, there's no more arbitrage anymore. And once those currencies that were low yielding and were doing well, like the yen, are no longer low yielding or doing well, you can't make those risk-free profits. So people start pulling the money out of that trade, trying to find something that's profitable. And that's why uh, the powers that be are so terrified of gold and silver, because there's no interest rates anywhere. And all the other fixed income securities are now falling. So they're focusing all their attention on trying to prop the stock exchange up. To get people to go from bonds to stocks, but for God's sake, keep your money in the paper markets and not in the real, uh, in the real money markets. Yeah, and if you look right now at the PEs, I just put a chart, I think, in this morning in my rant. The PE, for whatever that's worth, because earnings are all fraudulent now anyway, but the, the standard PE that the mainstream looks at is, two, is like almost at 2,000 levels when we had the stock crash. It's just mind-boggling how far they've pushed up stocks with simply printing money and buying stock futures. Also, by the way, with the same chart patterns. I call it the Dow Jones propaganda average. Almost every day is the same chart pattern for the Dow. So you must be seeing uh, potential for a for a very significant decline in equity prices in the U.S. I mean, we've seen them around the world. The, the bond, the Dow is not all that far from its all-time high now, but you, you think we're very close to something significant on the downside here for the stocks? Well, the Dow is close to its all-time high in nominal terms. If yeah. you use real inflation, it's down anywhere from 30 to 80%, depending on what number you use. And of course, the survivor bias, because they took out AIG, General Motors, and Eastman yeah. Kodak, and Citigroup, and replaced them with Cisco and who knows what else. But the fact, I don't really predict so much with the stock market, because in an inflation, yeah. it could nominally go higher. 
Sure. Uh, I really don't know. I know that it will lose its purchasing power relative to real goods and services in the coming years. And as we speak, I see this headline, uh, U.S. mutual funds report the largest ever bond outflow uh, for a single week. So the more pressure that there's going to be on bonds, the more pressure there's going to be for the Fed to not taper. And by the way, they never said they were going to taper. They just said we may taper if things go our way yeah. at the end of the year. And, and then a day later, they've tried out every Fed uh, governor to scream out, no, no, we didn't really mean that because we're so scared because bonds went up a, a whole three quarters of one percent. Andy, let me ask you this. Why, if, if Bernanke can print endless amounts of money or his successor can print en- endless amounts of money, why can't he keep interest rates near zero? Well, because there's, I mean, he could try, but uh, there's, a, there's, I mean, there's literally $5 trillion of treasuries that are held around the world by governments, most of whom don't like us very much and are also scared. It's a game of, mu- of musical chairs. Of course, they could do it. But the thing is that they, they do have to print as much as they try to hide what they're doing. They do have to print. They do have to publish something about what they're doing with money printing. And in order to absorb all the fearful money that's that's being sent to them, and remember, over the past year, the Fed uh, has has bought 87% of all new issuance. In order to keep up that pace, they're going to have to increase the money printing, which means announcing QE5, QE6, QE7. By the way, we have that debt ceiling issue. We're over the debt ceiling. They're going to have to raise it to possibly infinity in the next couple of uh, weeks. So at some point, if you print too much money just to buy bonds, you're going to scare people because the bond vigilantes are going to get fearful of inflation. Do you see then the potential of of all of the creditor nations basically ultimately abandoning the dollar and looking to go somewhere else? Um, For example, James Rickards, who preceded you in today's show, has talked about um, the unintended consequences of of putting a boycott on, on Iran and trying to seal them off, what they've done then is gone to uh, the countries that you were talking about, the creditor countries, countries like China, uh, well, the BRIC countries essentially, uh, and, and have and and they're actually trading in their own currency now. There are, or they're trading, they're trading using their own currencies and not using dollars at all. Um, so, do do you see the possibility then of, of a total abandonment of the U.S. dollar by the rest of the world as being the trigger that could really set things off in an inflationary direction? Well, certainly that's possible, and people talk about the uh, the, the uh, what do you call it, the petrodollar. You know, mm-hmm. what if uh, what if this this guy in Saudi Arabia, Abdullah, is dead, and the people that take over do it in a in a in a kind of a hostile fashion, as in Egypt, and they are anti-U.S. and they say enough with the with the uh, with the U.S. dollar, just like the uh, Iranians and the Iraqis and the Libyans have done. Obviously, it'll be a much bigger deal if they do it. That could be, but again, it's not so much about the dollar. Yes, the United States has the most to lose. From fiat currency devaluations because there's more U.S. dollars out there than any other currency, and thus we live higher, a higher standard of living than anyone else does. But it's not about the dollar. Believe me, if the dollar starts quote plunging, uh, it's going to be a it's going to be a global phenomenon because everyone owns dollars. Everyone's going to be fearful, and everyone's currencies are backed by nothing. So. Yes, I do in time believe the dollar will not be the world's reserve currency, just as all the other world's reserve currencies have failed throughout history. Uh, and the dollar w- and Americans will see the biggest decline in standard of living of anyone uh, because of it. But it's not about the dollar per se. I mean, look, if, if the euro falls apart, what, what if Greece leaves the euro and they default in the 500 billion and then the pigs, it spreads like a virus and then the euro collapses but it goes down in exchange value against the dollar, do you think that's going to really help Americans? No, because people are going to be fearful of paper currencies. They're going to be selling all currencies against 
oil, gold, food, even though at the same time they're selling euros to get dollars until eventually the dollars are out of style. You know, one of the uh, arguments for deflation, Andy, that, that I kind of buy up to this point is that uh, the velocity of money is declining. We're seeing a middle class that is being really uh, losing its purchasing power. I think you would agree with that. And uh, and so we're seeing also velocity, uh, the turning over of money, declining fairly sharply, uh, even since you know since 2008. Despite all the money that's been pumped into the system, what do you think would get that to change? Why would I, I guess if people start to believe that uh, that um, you know, things are going to be a lot more expensive tomorrow. They go out and buy today, right? That's the psychology that the that the Fed wants to avoid. Um, but do you see the possibility? What what is? I mean, I'm having a hard time seeing what the tipping point would be that would cause people to change their behavior, and 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 especially since so many people are broke, the middle class is broke. So is it going to be um, a sort of a third world type of a situation where there's a few people at the top that are incredibly wealthy, and maybe people that have some gold and silver will be able to survive? Or what, what's going to what's going to trigger this thing? I guess is really what I I guess it could be any number of things, as you said, but. But what is going to cause people to start changing their psychology? That's that's what I would what I would like to know. Well, the key to that 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 question is the fact that people are broke, including the dying middle class, and as a result, they tend to ignore what's going on around them. Look, if you don't have the money, let's say, to protect yourself with gold or even ammunition or food, you just don't want to hear it. You want to be told that everything is okay, and right. you will, as long as you can you can get stuff given to you for free, uh, then you will take it and. I mean, what else are you going to do? I mean, revolt? What is that going to do? So the point is, people want to believe that the status quo is okay, even though they know very well that the cost of living is getting higher every day. Mm -hmm. As for the velocity of money, look, the money printing is the cancer, the low velocity of money. I mean, that's that's exactly what's wrong. The reason there's no velocity of money is because the banks are all insolvent. They know it. Uh, you know, they get a little boost from the housing bubble here. But remember, housing prices are still way below they were at the at 2008 when there was all the problems. That's when they changed the accounting rules, the FASB, and said you can mark your your, your toxic assets at nothing. And now, of course, the Fed is buying them from them. They're printing money and buying mortgage bonds from them every month. So, uh, look, the velocity of money will only change at the very, very end when people realize that, that they're, no matter what, how much money printing, market manipulation, propaganda there is, that the system is getting out of control. It could happen any day. It could be a military coup in, in Egypt, which causes oil prices to go to $150 a barrel. It could be uh, Greece dropping out of the euro. It could be a terrorist attack. It could be so many different things. It could be simply people realizing that the economy is truly not growing for all the hype. And, and when the Fed says, finally, not only we're not tapering, but we're going to do QE5, and people are going, oh, my God, it really is QE to infinity. Yeah. We have to protect ourselves. And, you know, that could be in next month. It could be next year. I don't know. There's so many reasons out there why we insure our portfolios, physical gold and silver. Okay, <laughs> okay. yeah. Unfortunately, we're just about, we're just about out of time here. Uh, I, I think you make a very good point. The banks are broken. They know it, as you said. And, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this accounting fraud, I would call it, uh, that, that is really deceiving the people is all part of the game. And it's, it's really, really sad for sure. But at least people that listen to this show, people that, that read your, your writings, and I would really encourage people to go to blog.milesfranklin.com to read what Andy has to say. Lots of 
of great almost daily, right? Don't you, Andy? Five days a week. In fact, I do, and David Checkman uh, does as well. Our film's founder, and Bill Holter uh, writes every day as well. Oh, there's lots of good stuff there. So I can't uh, uh, impress you enough listeners out there to go to listen to what Andy and his colleagues have to say. This is really important stuff. Andy, uh, just take a minute yet before we say uh, goodbye today. Uh, tell our listeners about Miles Franklin. What you're, I guess you're a coin, basically coin, precious yeah. metals dealer? Yeah, we're, we're uh, one of the largest bullion dealers in America. Uh, we've been around 24 years and we have a A-plus Better Business Bureau rating because we've never had a registered complaint against us. Uh, we also have a storage program in uh, at Brinks, Montreal, very proud of. And look, just give us a call. We we give good customer service. We're competitive on prices, and we really just want to help you to understand what's best for you. For the sake, do you have a phone number, or people can go to your website, of course? Sure, 800-822-8080. And if you want to contact me, it's ahoffman at milesfranklin.com. Excellent. It's a great idea, folks, that you do that. And start out by going to blog.milesfranklin.com. Really glad you could be with me today, Andy, and it's really, really great to meet up with you in person as well. I hope we can have you back on again. You have lots of insightful articles, and I'm sure I'll want to have you back on to comment on some of those in the future. Thank you very much for being with us. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. In this climate of increasing global economic uncertainty, just one safe haven remains, precious metals. Led by a strong, proven management team, Prophecy Platinum is actively developing the Wellgreen Platinum Group Metals, Nickel, and Copper property. A large, easily accessible deposit in the Yukon with an estimated resource of 1 million ounces of PGM and gold indicated and a further 11 million ounces inferred. Large deposit, excellent infrastructure, impressive drill results, and increasing international demand. To learn more about Prophecy Platinum and the Wellgreen Project, visit prophecyplat.com. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm pleased to have with me Greg Johnson. Greg is the president and CEO of Prophecy Platinum. He's been in that position since November 2012. Prophecy Platinum is traded in Toronto under the symbol NKL. It's approximately 77.1 million shares outstanding. I should also mention that it trades in the United States on on the -the over-the-counter market and the QX market under the symbol PNIKF, recently trading in the 60 to 75 cent range, giving a market cap of around $50 million at the moment. Its flagship property is the Wellgreen Project in the Yukon. Uh, it does have a 43-101 resource on uh, on this property of 7 million ounces of platinum group metals plus gold. It's got 2 billion pounds of nickel, 2 billion pounds of copper, and there's a lot more exploration uh, upside as well, but certainly this is a, quite a deposit to start with. The Wellgreen, I, I have to say, it, it has to be called a world-class mineral deposit and it's got to be one of the most remarkable platinum group metal projects in the world. Well, to head up a project this large and complex, you need to have a CEO with a unique set of multiple 
technical, uh, financial, business, people skills, all those things have to be pulled together in a CEO. And that's where my guest, Greg Johnson, comes into the picture. Greg has over 25 years of experience in the exploration and development of large-scale projects in the mining industry, and he's been involved in raising over $650 million in project financing over those years. He was president and CEO at South American Silver during a period in which the company's market cap increased from $20 million to over uh, to around $350 million at its peak. And as co-founder and ex-executive at Nova Gold uh, Resources, he was a key member of the executive team that led Nova Gold from a $50 million market cap company to more than $2 billion and oversaw the expansion of its resource base to over 30 million ounces of gold. And Greg began his career with Placer Dome now Barry Gold, um, and he's held various senior roles in domestic and international exploration and projects from early discovery stage to feasibility to operations in Alaska, Canada, Africa, Australia, and Russia. And he holds, uh, his background is in geology, of course, uh, from Western Washington University. Welcome, Greg. It's really good to have you with us. Well, thank you, Jay. It's a, it's a pleasure to, to be on your program. Yeah, it, it really is a very remarkable project. I did visit the project a year and a half ago, a couple of years ago now, I guess it is. As I just mentioned you've been you've worked on other world-class projects in the past how does this company's well-green project compare in size and potential economics with some of the other big ones that you worked with well I think this project on its uh, its technical merits alone is uh, on par with uh, and you know the projects in Nova gold uh, like our Donlin Creek and Galore Creek projects that were such huge successes and it's very similar in terms of its technical scale and potential to the, the projects I worked on in, in South America uh, the real thing that stands out for me however is that uh, at Nova Gold, the projects were quite remote, so they were going to require you know extensive infrastructure, which meant that the capital cost to build the projects were, were uh, you know at the higher end. And this project, uh, because you can drive right off of the Alaska Highway to the site from an all-season road, has got excellent infrastructure. The second thing, in contrast with my two previous companies, uh, is that uh, it's located in the Yukon. So as compared to the, the South American projects I was involved in, you know the Yukon is probably one of the very best. Uh, jurisdictions in Canada for mine development. Uh, you know, the Yukon Territory doesn't have oil and gas. They don't really have timber. They don't really have fishing. So mining is the business uh, in the Yukon. And the government has taken, you know, huge steps to, to make sure that you've got a transparent uh, permitting process, that they support economic development from, from mines, that they've got the right kind of regulatory staff to be able to understand and, and review these things. And that's very helpful for a mining company to know you've got uh, a series of, of guidelines, environmental standards, engineering standards that you need to meet, and that those aren't going to change. And so mm-hmm. it's very predictable. It's a process that has a timeliness to it. Many projects get permitted in a year or less, um, and they know the business. So it's not an, an alien industry for them. And so I think all those factors combined for me, I think this might be the best opportunity of the of the three um, you know startup public companies I've been involved in in terms of uh, potential to drive this to production and to create you know new value for shareholders. Well. Aside from uh, the size of this project and and its location and some of the other sort of favorable infrastructure issues, um, what are are there some other properties or some other aspects to this deposit that makes it really substantial? I'm thinking in terms perhaps of the of its size or its uh, widths, its its thicknesses, that sort of thing. Yeah, the, the geometry of the ore body, particularly in the plat uh, sector, is, is quite unique. Uh, I'm probably I don't know the exact number, but probably more than 90, 95 percent of the world platinum comes from deep underground mines that are narrow seams, high cost structures, you know, particularly South Africa, and high political risk. 
what's unique about Wellgreen. In fact, we just had one of the, the world's leading experts on platinum group metals out to the site for a couple of weeks. He's been on all the major systems, Norilsk, uh, the system up in uh, northern Canada uh, that was discovered by Friedland, uh, the systems down in South Africa. And he said he's never been on a system where there was um, more than 500 meters of continuous platinum palladium mineralization. And, you know, Wellgreen starts right at surface. It's amenable to open pit mining, and it's really quite unique in that way. It's more similar to the very large disseminated gold systems, say, in Nevada that are mined through open pit methods than anything else in the platinum space. And because of that, it's going to mean that our cost structure to mine an ounce of platinum here uh, is going to be at the low end of, of the uh, industry you know, scale in terms of operating costs. And it allows us to approach this in a highly mechanized modern mining configuration in terms of safety and mitigating environmental impact. So I think this project has the opportunity to be really one of the premier uh, platinum producing mines in the world and even on a production basis uh, could well be the largest platinum mine in North America. Uh, clearly platinum group metals are, are essential to uh, to modern day life and to the environment too so you're in a, in a way helping by producing platinum to clean the environment I guess you could say that. You're a bit of a green Absolutely. company as a mining company, believe it or not. Absolutely, yeah. The use of platinum and palladium you know, the primary use for both those metals is in catalytic converters. So yeah, I agree it's it is really kind of a green technology, you know, element to it that uh, you know makes you really. It's going to have the industry looking for sources of supply on an ongoing growth basis, and if they can find that in jurisdictions like Canada, I think that should command a premium in the marketplace. In 2011, a preliminary economic assessment of the Well Green property was completed. Uh, can you share the results with our listeners? Yeah, that that uh, preliminary assessment uh, looked at initial metallurgical test work. It looked at an initial geologic model and resource model under the 43101 Canadian standards and showed that we had a, a project that at conservative metal prices, um, you know, had a potential net present value, so that's a discounted uh, cash flow value of, of uh, around a billion dollars, uh, had the potential to produce about $200 million a year in, in cash flow. And it put the project projections using very conservative assumptions for metal recovery at the third largest platinum palladium producing mine in North America. So uh, demonstrated, even at an initial level, uh, a robust project that has excellent opportunity in a number of areas uh, for us to be able to optimize the project and, uh, you know, really demonstrated uh, a new concept for this project. That is, instead of narrow, high-grade underground mining, uh, that this could be looked at as a bulk mineable open pit uh, project that looks, you know, very uh, exciting. Well, there's no doubt, you know, when I went up to, uh, when I went up to visit this project uh, before you became involved with it, it certainly looked very exciting, but there were some issues that seemed to be um, some people, there was one geologist in particular who was up there with me, uh, said that he was somewhat concerned about the metallurgical recoveries. Um, and, I, and I've heard that from more than one person as well. What is management doing to address that issue, or is it an issue? Well, I don't really think at this point that there's any indication that it's an issue. The work is preliminary in that, you know, we're at that first engineering stage. So the, the work that's been done to date in terms of a modern open pitable uh, configuration has looked at, does the project respond to a conventional process of crushing the ores and using a process called flotation to extract the metals from the inert rock material, produce what's called a concentrate, and then be able to sell that that product uh, to a smelter, to, you know, and refining out the, the nickel, copper, cobalt, and the um, platinum group metals. And the 
initial test work, you know, though it's just that first round, has been encouraging. It shows that, yes, um, all of those metals respond to a flotation process, which is very conventional, and that you could produce either a bulk concentrate or a, a concentrate that's sold to a copper smelter or a nickel smelter or, or possibly a, a PGM uh, concentrate. So it's, it's encouraging that it, what it shows. What needs to happen as a second step is that we need to do uh, additional optimization work that looks at how do we improve the overall recoveries. Uh, as I mentioned, particularly on the PGM side of things, our initial preliminary economic assessment assumed less than 50% recovery of the platinum metals. Hmm. And so that number is very conservative if you benchmark it against operating PGM nickel copper mines such as the, the Sudbury Mining District. Um, and, you know, typically you would probably see numbers more like 70, 80, or 90% recovery. So we wow. believe through our work this year with our metallurgical specialist uh, who have worked on optimizing, you know, mines around the world, that we're going to be able to bring those numbers up. And that's one of those opportunities, uh, you know, that I mentioned earlier for improving the economics. Mm -hmm. I might also point out that when this was operated as a mine uh, in the 1970s by HUD Bay, which is one of our mid-sized Canadian producers, that they sold the concentrate product from this mine to Sumitomo for processing. So, you know, demonstrate that these ores do make economic uh, concentrate product that are sellable in the market. And I, I believe that we'll be able to demonstrate uh, through the optimization work, improved recovery levels that are going to show that this is this is a very exciting project. Well, another uh, another issue that's raised, especially at this time, uh, given the current market conditions, the abysmal market conditions, very difficult to raise capital right now. You're looking at a world-class deposit, Greg, that's going to require quite a bit of capital. Uh, how do you address that concern? Yeah, uh, definitely when you're looking at construction of a mine today, even a smaller mine, you know, we're talking numbers that are a couple of hundred million plus range. And if you're looking at a very large-scale open pit, you could be looking at numbers that approach a billion dollars or more, and, and that's, a, that's a lot of money. Now, fortunately, uh, we have a couple of years ahead of us before we're looking at anything close to those kind of expenditures. You know, our budgets to do the exploration, engineering, and test work are, are probably in the kind of 5 million to 10 million type range over the next couple of years. Um, so certainly those level of uh, expenditures are, are things that we can approach through the equity markets and through kind of a traditional uh, financing approach. The opportunity for the company, because this project occurs with so much nickel and copper, 2 billion pounds uh, respectively of each metal, um, we have the opportunity to approach a different form of financing than you would look at with a, just a straight you know, gold project or silver mm -hmm. project or even platinum project. We have the opportunity to approach the smelting groups who need to secure long long-term sources of concentrate product for their, their nickel and copper smelters and to be able to enter into arrangements which are really a win-win for both parties. Uh, it brings to the smelting group a secure source of supply through these offtake type concentrates um, so that they can ensure that they have product to run through their smelters and to produce metal on the back end. And for the company, Prophecy Platinum, it potentially gives us a source of low-cost financing, often it's done through the development banks in these countries such as China and Japan and Korea, um, low-cost financing to finance the construction of the project, not through equity issuance, but through uh, low-cost loans, and gives us the ability oftentimes even to provide funding during the exploration and development phase that is, you know, for the option to be able to have that ability to purchase that future concentrate. So I think it's, it's highly likely, Jay, that we'll look at those types of structures that really maximize the value of the co-product metals and be able to allow the, the project to be financed without excessive dilution for the shareholders. 
shareholders. And I'm encouraged that already uh, the company has been approached by a number of these large global names in the smelting business, recognizing the scarcity uh, of nickel and copper concentrates on the market, particularly ones that have such enrichment in platinum group metals. Speaking of money, what how, how is the company's financial condition right now? Do you have some cash in the bank? Yeah, I'm pleased to, to report that we just completed a, a $5.9 million financing mm. um, just uh, earlier this month. And yeah, this is in a market that I'm, I'm sure your listeners are aware, in that, at least in the resource space, it's a very difficult market. It's been about a two and a half going on three year uh, consolidation, really bear market. And yeah. it's very difficult right now to to raise money in the sector. So I think uh, that was at the higher end of our targeted range for, for financing. We saw a number of our existing shareholders step up to um, put additional money into the company. Uh, and we did the financing, believe it or not, at, a, at about a, a 12% premium to market. Hmm. So I think it it demonstrated, uh, you know, the interest. In addition, management put in close to a million dollars in that financing at a premium to market as well, mm-hmm. uh, demonstrating our belief that uh, this is a very attractive uh, investment level for the company. Greg, moving forward, what can our listeners uh, and my subscribers as well, because this is a, a top recommendation in my newsletter, what uh, moving forward, what can we be looking forward as drivers uh, in this story? Well, um, again, because of the tough market conditions, there aren't a lot of companies doing work on their projects this year, um, but we're going to be an exception, Jay. Mm. We've got a, a team of, of geologists and engineers out on site, uh, and one of the opportunities that we're looking at that we're, we're quite excited about, you know, this project has been explored on and off since the 1950s and was put in production in the 1970s, and so we've got a vast set of data from, you know, previous areas. Of, of exploration because the mark because the, the target that those groups were looking at were high grade underground uh, mining concepts um, and we're looking at this at a fresh perspective of something that's bulk mineable in, in an open pit um, really those are two very different ways to look at the same project and so we have an opportunity to go back in to that historic drill core uh, that was drilled historically and sampled for only the high grade intervals and to be able to resample that relog it and reassess it as part of this year's program Program. Um, you know, it looks like we may have up to about 12,000 meters of, of that type of core wow. uh, throughout the project. So effectively, it's it's like a an infill drill program mm. that's already been drilled. <laughs> um, it would probably cost us fifteen or twenty million dollars to drill those holes. To drill today. those holes, wow! So you can um, uh, put you can put your geologists to work and 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 pull a model together and uh, sort of low cost upgrade of the project. Exactly. Uh, so we're going to be systematically going through and resampling those drill cores, which are still on site and in excellent condition. Uh, we'll be able to put modern quality control checks and standards in it, so they'll meet forty three one hundred one requirements, and those will be able to come into our resource model uh, with those those new controls. We're going to follow that work on with um, drill uh, crews will be arriving at the end of this month, and we're going to be starting to test some of these you know, key areas in the deposit, particularly where we see higher grades. And I'm, I'm excited about this. We've got a system here that when we look at it, you know, five of the best drill holes in the entire deposit have never been offset. They've never had a hole hmm. drilled to the side wow. uh, of them yet. And so we've got just some tremendous opportunities to grow the resource within the current mine plan uh, and to be able to add in particular some of this higher grade material because, you know, 
particularly as the markets are concerned about, well, where will future metal prices be going? Now, platinum and palladium have held up very well. Mm-hmm. In fact, they're the top two performing metals in the precious metal space. But, you know, taking a conservative view on metals, we want to focus on those higher grade portions of the ore body that we can put through the mine plan in the first five to 10 years and be able to just to look at, if possible, a low capital startup option so that we're, we're not looking at a mega project, as well as look at something that's got really robust rates of return so that investors can feel confident this is something that can be kind of fast-tracked and brought to uh, you know, a full realization of the value of the company. I mean, if you take a look at the net present value of this project, so that discounted cash flow value, this has the potential to be a billion-plus dollar project at mm-hmm. conservative metal prices. Mm-hmm. Our Excellent. market cap today is around $50 million. I know. Uh, this is not unusual at early stages, mm-hmm. uh, combined with the bear market that we've been in in the sector for the last little while, to see these kind of heavily, heavily discounted valuation. But if we can demonstrate to the market that we have access to capital, that we're in a unique uh, area of the precious metal space, we've got the right team and the right financial backers to be able to take this forward, that's how you unlock that value. That's how you see the model, the, the market start to value a company based on uh, more profitability per ounce uh, as a long-term valuation, which is traditionally what a, a precious metal producer will trade at is kind of profit margin per ounce times reserves in the ground. has been a, a long-term historic metric of value, and we traded a fraction of that today. Well, it's a great story, Greg. It's it's really one that's got me very, very excited. It's certainly one that I've, well, I've added to my newsletter recently after you and I sat down and talked. I guess it was in June, perhaps, or May in, in Vancouver. It really is, I think, a very exciting story. I want to thank you very much for being with us. We are out of time, unfortunately, but we'll have to have you back again for an update sometime in the not-too-distant future, I hope. That that would be terrific. We look forward to it. Thank you very, very much. And uh, folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with some thoughts about today's show and also uh, a word about next week's guests. Don't go away. I'll be right back. Golden Arrow Resources on the TSX Exchange has recently made a new silver discovery and is presently drilling a 6,500-meter program on that discovery. A maiden resource calculation is expected to be released in April of this year. The project is located in Jujuy Province in northern Argentina, just 30 kilometers from the Perquitas Mine operated by Silver Standard. Golden Arrow has an experienced team with decades of experience in Argentina. Golden Arrow offers shareholders exceptional leverage with an exciting new silver discovery. SGX Resources is an exploration gold company with multiple advanced exploration projects in the Timmins Gold Camp. Recent high-grade intersections at SGX's Tully Deposit include 14 meters at 20.1 grams per ton and 17.6 meters at 11.1 grams per ton. The deposit is currently more than 600 meters along strike with a depth of up to 250 meters and remains open in all directions. SGX Resources trades on the TSX Venture Exchange with the trading symbol SXR. Visit our website at www.sgxresources.com. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questions4taylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. 
Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, which, uh, with some thoughts about today's show. Well, I really did enjoy my discussions uh, with James Rickards and Andy Hoffman and Greg Johnson. Uh, Rickards certainly is one you want to pay attention to. He is very much a mainstream guy. He's advising the Pentagon. Uh, but he's a person who also understands economics. I have to think, based on all I've heard from James Rickards, he's pretty much a free market guy. He understands that the free markets are really what ultimately prevails. And and so he provides something very, very valuable, I think, to the United States uh, Pentagon. But he can also be very valuable to you if you listen to what he has to say because he also brings with him, I think, a very realistic idea of how the world really works geopolitically. So he combines the, his understanding of the markets, Wall Street, currencies, uh, along with his understanding of what's really going on in the world geopolitically. Very valuable. I would urge you to buy the book Currency Wars, the paperback edition, which has an update and really talks a lot about some of the unintended consequences of American policy policies in uh, Iran. Andy Hoffman, really energizing, ranting Andy. Really a pleasure to have met him down there. Uh, recently at the uh, Liberty Mastermind Symposium in Dallas. Uh, this is a man who really knows his stuff, a former Wall Street pro, uh, really highly regarded on Wall Street, but found, uh, really understands that the markets, uh, what they are, he understands gold and silver, I think, as well as anyone, understands uh, that what you, see, what you hear and what you see from the mainstream is not necessarily what you get. And I think Andy is very, very, uh, very, very helpful uh, for people that want to read his blog, it's an excellent blog, a daily blog, and you can go to milesfranklin.com not only for Andy's uh, to catch up with what Andy's writing every day, but also to avail yourself to the services of that firm, milesfranklin.com. We'll be talking to Andy, I'm sure, much more in the future. Greg Johnson, really a pleasure talking to Greg. I really have gotten excited about Prophecy Platinum, have bought shares myself, have recommended it. I do believe that the, um, the Wellgreen property with Greg Johnson at the helm has a chance to become perhaps one of the greatest uh, platinum group uh, deposits in the world and mines in the, in the world as well. So I, I'm really, we'll be writing about that a lot in my own newsletter from time to time going forward. I should mention just a word about Charles Nanner and his latest uh, views on gold and silver. Charles uh, Nanner provides wonderful updates uh, several times a week on all kinds of markets, but we mentioned to you the gold and silver markets because that's what we're most focused on. He says, uh, in yesterday, he says, uh, Gold and silver continue on a sell signal for now. Only a close above 1284 for gold and above 2130 for silver will be the first indication of a low. A close above 1466 for gold and a close above 23 for silver will be a safer buy signal. He's not saying we haven't bottomed, but he thinks there's a good chance that we will bottom yet. We could see still lower lows in gold yet. So no hurry from his point of view. I would say, though, when I look at the gold shares, I'm very excited because I don't see that there's a whole lot of downside uh, uh, risk there now. Liberty Mastermind Symposium was fabulous in Dallas. Next week we're going to have two more people coming as speakers that were at the Liberty Mastermind uh, symposium. Michael Krieger, another Wall Street pro, and John Rubino, also previously a Wall Street pro. These are guys that have great insights into the world as it really works. Uh, Michael Krieger, LibertyBlitzkrieg.com, LibertyBlitzkrieg.com. Go there, check him out. He'll be on the show next week, as will John Rubino, has been with us before. He's with James Turk, uh, The uh, Collapse of the Dollar, uh, his book. 
Uh, also, questions for Taylor at gmail.com to recommend a free copy of my newsletter. I have to close now. That's all the time I have. Thanks, Tacey Trump, Matt Widener, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.